Welcome to the latest edition of the College of American Pathologist CAPcast. I'm Becca Battisfor, Content Specialist with the CAP. In this episode, Dr. Mary Edgerton will be talking with experts in pancreatic cancer research, diagnosis, treatment, and patient advocacy. Pancreatic cancer continues to have one of the highest mortality rates of all major cancers. It is currently the third highest with a five-year survival rate of less than 12%. It is estimated that over 64,000 Americans will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2023, with more than 50,000 succumbing to the disease. This month's Cancer Awareness Podcast will explore what's on the horizon for pancreatic cancer research, how it will impact patient outcomes, and the role of pathology data in these efforts. Before we get into the questions, I'll have our guests introduce themselves. Dr. Edgerton, we'll start with you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mary Edgerton. I'm a breast pathologist and pathology informatician currently at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. Hi, I'm Paula Kim. I am a CEO of Track Translating Research Across Communities and a senior research fellow at um, George Mason University Center for Health and Risk Communication. And I am the co-founder and former CEO and chair of PanCan Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Thank you. Hi, I'm Anurban Maitra. I'm a professor um, of pathology and translational molecular pathology and scientific director of the Pancreas Cancer Research Center at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I'm actually uh, a trained uh, GI and pancreas pathologist. I did my fellowship training at Johns Hopkins uh, with Dr. Ralph Ruban, who you'll hear about later in the show, um, and stayed on at Hopkins for uh, about a dozen years before I moved to MD Anderson 10 years ago. Um, and uh, I spend most of my time in the lab doing pancreas cancer research, but I also uh, uh, sign out GI biopsy, so kind of bridge both boats a little bit here as a physician scientist. Hi, I'm Nilo Azad. Um, I'm a medical oncologist here at Johns Hopkins, and um, I have the honor of serving as the director of our phase one clinical trials program, our developmental therapeutics program, um, that is really the, the key program at our cancer center that develops agents that are coming right out of the laboratory and moving into human beings for the first time um, when those are being developed in a non-tumor specific fashion. So when they're being developed across different cancer types. I also um, am a clinician, so I take care of patients with GI cancers, including pancreatic cancer as one of my key missions. Um, and I also am I'm co-leader of our cancer genetics and epigenetics program here, which is our research-based program that really focuses on how we can use the genetic and epigenetic abnormalities in cancers um, to be able to come up with new therapies. Hi, I'm Ralph Rubon. I'm the Baxley Professor and Director of Pathology here at Johns Hopkins, and I direct the Saul Goldman Pancreatic Cancer Research Center uh, here at Hopkins. I'm uh, dedicated to uh, pancreatic pathology, um, and I've had the pleasure of working with many of the people on this uh, podcast. Um, I sincerely believe that uh, tissue is the issue, if you will, that pathology is the foundation for understanding and researching pancreatic cancer, and also pathology is the foundation for improving patient care. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Fatima Zalada Renes, and I'm the senior director overseeing the research and education initiatives at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, where um, I work closely with patients and caregivers and families and anyone that's impacted by pancreatic cancer through our different programming and services. I've been doing that for over 13 years now and just love working in that space, supporting patients and families who are going through um, a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Thank you so much for having me. 
Welcome and thank you all for joining the podcast. Dr. Edgerton, I'll let you take it from here. Okay. Well, I'd like to start with Paula Kim, whom I've known, gosh, over 20 years now. Paula, it's great to see you again, even if virtually. Can you share your family's story that led you to form the Pancreatic Cancer Network with your co-founders? So thank you, Mary. It's great to be here with everybody. Um, my story was one back in uh, 1998 when my father was um, diagnosed, but not diagnosed because the biopsy was actually inconclusive. And um, But he ultimately had pancreatic cancer and died within about 75 days of, of that point in time, uh, which as we know is sometimes um, not all that uncommon. Um, but through that journey, I had the privilege and pleasure of meeting uh, one of my favorite people and it happens to be on this call is Dr. Ralph Ruban. And uh, we, we met because he responded to a, an email uh, that I had sent to a, a chat page that, that Dr. Ruban had started at Johns Hopkins that had brought together many patients and families and caregivers. On uh, Dr. Ruban's chat page, I, I met other folks, in particular Pam Acosta, who was one of my co-founders um, at PanCan. And um, there were just a handful of small volunteers. And we, in 1998, had our first uh, Evening with the Stars event, which was our big gala fundraiser that we, we all worked on. And that led to uh, the development of the first early detection research laboratory at Johns Hopkins for Dr. Mike Goggins. It was Pam Acosta, uh, Terry Learman, who was an, an, another, uh, the third co-founder, and Terry had lost his father to pancreatic cancer. Pam lost her mother to pancreatic cancer. And then um, with the three of us, we had the first event. And then following year in 1999 is, is when we moved forward to establish PanCan. Can I say you took quite a lead because you testified <laughs> before Congress. You yeah. were in Washington. You were uh, meeting with the head of the NIH and then members of Congress again. I I was truly amazed by you. And I think I told you last time I saw you, I said to a friend of mine, an oncologist, I think Paula Kim is the smartest woman I know. And he said, <laughs> oh, she is definitely. Um, uh, I would say, Mary, I would say maybe persistent, maybe stubborn, <laughs> right? You, you did a, a, a wonderful job. Keep this in perspective. And, and Honor Bond and Ralph, you guys know this, is like back then, it was a very small community. It was a very small community of researchers, Right. And, and, and Dr. Scott Kern, one of my colleagues at Hopkins, he, he used to say when we were talking to NCI, there are less than 10 full time, fully funded researchers. Right. And Ralph and others, Mary, you and Dr. Berlin and just all of the wonderful colleagues, Margaret Tempero, Dan Von Ha, you all helped to inform us what we needed to do to help you in the research community. And so it was uh, one of the greatest partnerships, I think, between a, a, a small group of, of volunteers and um, a group of very dedicated researchers who were committing their careers to this disease, but the funding was like teeny, teeny, tiny, right? When we had our first Evening with the Stars event, we, we worked hard, 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 and we raised something like $120,000, which that point in time, given we weren't an organization, was actually a, a reasonably large sum of money. Oh, but it was. 
I looked at it and I said, well, okay, $120,000. And I don't have any scientific background. I don't have policy background. I, I raised my children. That's my background. And, um, but Dr. Ruban and others helped to educate me and our team of volunteers at that time, because we were 100% volunteers when we started. Um, they educated me about the public policy process and the difficulty of pancreatic researchers competing for money uh, at NCI NIH. And then as I further looked into it, I realized that at that time, pancreatic cancer was fifth leading cause of cancer death, but it was only getting about $9.9 .9 million in federal funding to the academic centers. And then if you contrast that with the, the more highly funded diseases at the time, um, it didn't take a lot to understand that that was a result of very strong advocacy at that time as to what made uh, breast cancer, prostate, lung, and colon uh, have significantly larger budgets. And so with that in mind, that's what we set our sights on um, at NCI. And, and again, like I say, we had a half a dozen volunteers. So I Growing up in California, and we, we founded PanCan in California because Pam and I were both based there. We, I knew that we had to get to east of the Mississippi and, <laughs> and Washington, D.C., right? Uh, and at that time, pancreatic cancer, like I say, was getting pennies on the dollar. And so it created uh, a number of um, uh, visual charts to basically... Um, remind the NCI that, that pancreatic cancer was this deadly disease, but not getting any attention. And so I focused on uh, Washington, DC, and we wrote, um, uh, along with Terry Learman and our team, we wrote the very first ever pancreatic cancer report language, which, you know, as some of you may understand, is the, the direction, if you will, from Congress to the NIH with how to um, allocate and spend research dollars. PanCam was a new kid on the block at that point in time. And we we didn't have a track record. We didn't have a lot of things. We had no money. And so with that, I still had the opportunity to testify twice in Congress and to share with them the important need of why we need to fund uh, more research. Very important indeed. And now let's move on to hearing about some of that research and one of your beneficiaries, uh, Dr. Anurban Maitra. Welcome. I know you because we were both at MD Anderson and you serve as the medical director of the Sheikh Ahmed Pancreatic Cancer Research Center. Tell us some about the research that you're currently working on. Absolutely, Mary. And thank you for having me on the show. Um, before I, 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 I answer that question, I just want to give out a shout out to you know the the pioneers of of this of this whole area. You know Ralph and and Scott Kern, who Paula mentioned, and then of course Paula herself. You know, um, and I I bring this up because we just had this large pancreatic cancer meeting that is organized by the ACR in Boston, and I was one of the co-organizers of that. We had over seven hundred people in the room. And when you think back to the time that that Paula just mentioned, you know, 10 people nationally who were funded and, you know, these lonely voices trying to say, you know, listen to us, listen to us, we have this terrible disease and nothing's being done. You know, it, it is just incredible to think back. And, and so I think the word persistence is really, um, you know, an appropriate description for some of the early pioneers two of whom are on this call today. And, and so, you know, real, real salute to them and where the field is today, 
is is really an homage to the early efforts uh, that they all made. So uh, there's a lot happening. As I said, there, there's now a, a, a meeting just dedicated to pancreas cancer by, held by the ACR every year, and we had 700 people attending it. So you know there's a lot of activity going on. Um, you know, when I think about the, the major sort of research advances that have been made, um, a lot of that has happened in the sphere of understanding the molecular genetics of this disease. We now know a lot about what are the key driver genes that, uh, that are altered in pancreatic cancer. We know a lot about uh, sort of the familial risk that, that many families uh, with this disease have and some of the germline alterations that cause that risk. Again, work that came out of um, Johns Hopkins and, and also the Mayo Clinic, late Gloria Peterson, whom we actually honored at this ACR meeting, was one of the pioneers with Ralph in really trying to understand the, the, the genetic basis of familial disease. Uh, we know a lot about that now. We know a lot about the molecular alterations outside of the cancer cells, what's happening in terms of the host response, because that's not just a passive bystander as we used to think 20 years ago. We now know that there is a lot of active crosstalk between cancer cells and the host. And some of it, um, it perturbs the cancer from going and others are co-opted by the cancer in terms of progression and metastases. Um, and then of course, a um, lot has happened on the clinical arena and I'm gonna let Dr. Ozad speak about that because she's really the expert on that. But it's really a, a, a almost a renaissance time uh, in this disease in terms of making advances and, 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 and new therapeutics. So there's a lot to talk about on that front as well. So I noticed that uh, you have an, a gene expression-based signature for prognosis in pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Is that being used? So there's a lot of work that has been done, you know, obviously the early molecular alteration characterization was in the context of, of mutations, things that are abnormal in the DNA, RAS mutations, P53, SMAD4, et cetera. But we have also come to recognize that there's this whole universe outside of the genome, uh, especially the transcriptome that is also important in terms of both uh, predictive and prognostic biomarkers in pancreatic cancer. So work that was done by many other groups uh, in, around the country and as well as globally, you know, groups, groups in Canada and other places have identified these RNA-based signatures that we know now uh, predict responses to first-line therapy. So uh, patients with a certain subtype of RNA signatures that we call basal subtype, for example, very much like the basal subtype in breast and, and other diseases, are more aggressive and they don't respond to a commonly used first-line therapies and others that we call classical uh, tend to be more responsive. So, so the, the sort of the overarching message from all of this is that there is obviously um, a universe outside of the genome. Uh, the genome is, is very important and these are in fact key drivers that, that, that are responsible for initiation and progression, but there's also transcription factor driven um, alterations, epigenetic alterations that again, Dr. Azad um, is doing a lot of therapeutic studies in that are also important in terms of disease progression. And in fact, are involved in, in guiding responses to therapy. So um, we are seeing now clinical trials being done that are not just dividing patients into strata based on their genomic alterations, but also their RNA subtype, which is kind of a unique way of, of approaching pancreas cancer. Typically, it used to be one size fits all. 
But now these trials are happening where we are taking the RNA profile and we are saying, you know, you get this type of therapy and you don't. So that's kind of unique. That is very exciting. Well, this is a good time to bring in Dr. Azad. Uh, you are the co-director of cancer, cancer genetics and epigenetics and a professor of oncology at the Johns Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the clinical trials that you're leading in pancreatic cancer and particularly in epigenetics? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I don't think that I'm overstating it to say that after decades of um, a really small amount of progress in patients with pancreatic cancer, that we are on the precipice of a dramatic alteration in the way that patients are going to receive benefit from clinical trials uh, work. Um, and, and the main area that I'm speaking about is really around KRAS-driven therapy. So Pancreatic cancer is a cancer that has a mutated KRAS gene in 90% of patients with pancreatic cancer. And it, this is a, a, a mutation that has been considered untargetable um, for 40 years um, and is, is really ubiquitous among many cancers, but is um, there's no tumor type where it is in higher prevalence than what we see in pancreatic cancer. And in the last four years, um, what we've seen is, and, and this is with the advances in technology and medicinal chemistry that have happened is that we now have drugs that can target, directly target KRAS mutations, and more importantly, these result in benefit in pancreatic cancer. So we've had many times where there have been exciting drugs that seem to work in many other tumor types, but then when we start treating our pancreatic cancer patients, um, because of so many other histological issues and pathological issues, we don't get that benefit. But in pancreatic cancer, these KRAS-specific mutation inhibitors um, have been dramatically active um, and resulting in both tumor shrinkage and disease stabilization in the vast majority of patients that they've been tested in. Um, now, the, the, the biggest area that this has happened is in a particular KRAS mutation, uh, KRAS G12C, but that's not a very common KRAS mutation in pancreatic cancer. It's only one or 2%. We now have in the clinic um, G12D inhibitors, that is the, the most common mutated KRAS um, mutation that we see, and we have pan-KRAS inhibitors that were literally just reported um, this weekend at, um, at a big uh, international meeting um, that also has shown significant disease stability in the vast majority of pancreatic cancer patients. Um, and we've got more and more of these drugs that are coming online, and we're going to learn how to use them better because right now people have benefit, but after a period of time, uh, patients will develop resistance to them. So we're going to start seeing uh, opportunities to combine Bind these agents to make them more powerful and overcome resistance. Um, there has been beautiful preclinical work that has come out, elegant work in high-impact high um, journals showing the immune impact of these drugs. And so we're going to start using and seeing these drugs utilized with immunotherapies, which is um, a second big area where we haven't broken through yet, but we are now starting to see some activity of um, immunotherapy in handfuls of patients that we're using the proper combination therapies for. So we are really in a, a very hopeful time um, in the next few years for our pancreatic cancer patients. And what we really need is investment. We need investment from, um, from the research community. We need investment from our government, which you know has its own challenges right now. Um, and we need investment from philanthropy and private industry. And if we put those pieces 
together, in five years, we're going to see a completely different life expectancy for patients with pancreatic cancer. That is very, very exciting to hear. I'm going to turn a little bit to pathology because, well, you know, we pathologists think that pathology is the center of, of medicine. Do you use the pathology reports and items in that to help uh, select your patients for clinical trials? So absolutely, though, I would say um, I'd broaden that past just the, the histological pathology, though that's important as well, um, and also include the molecular pathology piece, which, uh, you know, as I just talked about, is so key um, in how we take care of patients. Um, also have a, about 5% of patients that have mutations in genes that are involved with genetic susceptibility, um, which both have um, drugs that we can use to help those patients and then have ramifications for family members as well. Um, so those pieces of the molecular pathology report are very important. Um, but, you know, even the, our traditional path reports give us a lot of very important information regarding how we can risk stratify patients in the adjuvant setting, for example. Um, and for me, you know, one of the, the areas I'm really interested in is, you know, subsets of pancreatic cancer patients that we don't have good therapies for. So I'm running a clinical trial right now in collaboration with Liz Thompson, who is um, a pathologist at, at Johns Hopkins, who had has done some really um, exciting work looking at adenosquamous um, pancreatic cancer and how different adenosquamous pancreatic cancer is in terms of immune infiltration. And so we're now running a trial um, and that trial as part of being on that study, there's a path review that has to uh, be uh, undertaken centrally to, to qualify patients for that um, as well. So I think we're really seeing how important tissue is. And I would absolutely agree that tissue is the issue. Um, I want to add one other thing. Pancreatic cancer can be difficult. You know, I think uh, Paula mentioned this as well. Sometimes it's hard to, to get enough tissue to be able to do the um, diagnostic work and the sequencing work that we want. Um, and so this is a place where new ctDNA technologies are also extraordinarily important. Um, and so we're starting to use ctDNA as a way to diagnose patients, to open up treatment options for them. And I, am I very much believe that in the next few years, we'll start using ctDNA to screen patients and detect cancer either early or even in its pre-malignant stage, which again, when we think of 10 years from now, when we think about our children's generation, that's what we want. We want pancreatic cancer to be in the rear view mirror in terms of showing up in the advanced stage the way that it is now. So just define CT for our audience. Oh, CT is um, circulating tumor DNA or cell-free CF DNA, which I think is probably um, even the more accurate term since we can get cell-free DNA from many different kinds of um, uh, body specimens and liquids. So that that's what I'm referring to. So do you use at all the, um, the synoptic reports that come out of the College of American Pathologists to help organize your pancreatic cancer data? I mean, we, I would say that at this point, the, and I think part of this is in treatment of patients, um, it's, very, it's a very clean and nice way for us to be able to quickly know how to treat our patients in terms of standard of care. 
when it comes to clinical trials, the information that's contained in that, in those reports and in that, um, that section can be very important to help us qualify patients for clinical trials. But in our cancer, the biggest issue is that we don't have enough clinical trials. If you open up a pancreatic cancer clinical trial, that trial enrolls in the blink of an eye because there is such an unmet need. Um, and so what we really need is, is more studies. That's great to know. Uh, I actually know people who would <clears throat> love to be on such studies. So Dr. Ruben, uh, you're also at Johns Hopkins and also have known Paula Kim a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as the director of the Saul Goldman Pancreatic Cancer Research Center? Sure, I'm I, uh, remembering uh, Paula fondly in those early days. And I remember these two women who reached out to us on the internet, Paula, uh, was one of them and said, come to uh, Hollywood, California and, you know, bring a tuxedo uh, for this fundraiser. And we didn't know if they were real or not. And so Mike Ogden and I uh, um, uh, rented a tuxedo and I, I went and they were, of course, you know, wonderful, intelligent, beautiful women who've had such impact on the field. Um, and so that's uh, fondly remembering uh, those days. And um, uh, uh, it's great to be with everyone on this uh, uh, Zoom. I think uh, I just want to echo some of the words of, of my colleagues. You know, when you think of uh, the pathology of pancreatic cancer, we're in many ways lucky that the genetic drivers of this disease mirror the histology. And so histology is still uh, critically important to the diagnosis and management of patients with pancreatic cancer, and hence the synoptic reports are so absolutely uh, uh, critical. Um, but as uh, uh, Nilo and Honor mentioned, uh, there are other aspects to the disease, then pathologists can help uh, drive an understanding of those. So starting with the germline, as Nilo mentioned, you know, a number of patients with pancreatic cancer actually have inherited a risk factor that caused them to develop it. And the BRCA1, BRCA2, and PALB2, those are not only important for the families, but they're targetable. Probably one of the best uh, targets available is actually based on the patient's germline. So now, you know, the standard of care for patients with pancreatic cancer is germline testing to see if they carry one of these. Then moving to the next step, the somatic mutations. And as uh, Anurban Anilo hinted, uh, the genes that drive pancreatic cancer are known. They don't influence the classification of the disease as much as they can influence the therapy. So again, the standard for pathologists should be to take not only the germline incentive for sequencing, but the tumor itself and um, identify whether there's there's a, a fusion a gene that is targetable, or as Nilo mentioned now, unbelievable that KRAS is targetable. So it's an exciting time to be a pathologist in uh, studying pancreatic cancer because, you know, where uh, when Paula first started where there was no hope, now there is hope for patients. And it's this wonderful partnership between pathologists, clinicians, and patient advocacy groups that's made it happen. Oh, thank you. That was very well put. I looked into some of your research and you are working on non-invasive precursor lesions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So if you think of colon cancer, you know, we when we turn 50, we all go get our colonoscopy. And the, the hope is not that you're going to find a colon cancer. The hope is that if you're predisposed, you're going to have colon cancer, you find a polyp, a non-invasive lesion that can be removed and the patient never gets cancer. Um, and, you know, if you look at the survival rates for uh, colon cancer, the death rates have gone down because of colonoscopy and treating these precursor lesions. We'd love to do the same for pancreatic cancer. There indeed are well-defined histologic precursors to invasive pancreatic cancer. One's called pancreatic enteropathy and neoplasia, another interductal uh, uh, papillary mucinous neoplasm, and another mucinous cystic neoplasm. The names aren't as important as they, the opportunities they present for early detection before there's an incurable invasive cancer and treatment. Of course, the challenge is that it's, it's not like biopsying the skin and taking off a, you know, oh, that was a nevus. You didn't, it wasn't a melanoma, no problem. The pancreas is, it lies deep in the abdomen and uh, surgery, it can be fraught with complications. So um, the goal now is to identify those precursor lesions, those precancers that are very likely to progress um, and leave in place, which you wouldn't do in the skin or colon, those that aren't likely to progress. And I think pathologists will play a critical role in this as we're the ones evaluating uh, the tissues that are resected and determining if there's dysplasia and other features that may suggest progression. So precancerous lesions, I think, are a real opportunity to make a difference, but they're also a risk for overtreatment. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. Of course, in breast, we use the precancers, and then we've uh, pulled back because of the overtreatment issues. So right, knowing which ones are going to progress is very important. Uh, Dr. Zelada Arenas, um, you are the Senior Director of Patient Services and Research and Education at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, PANCAN. So you've picked up the, the helm uh, from Paula and the co-founders of PanCan. Can you tell us a little bit about the Know Your Tumor Precision Medicine Service and how it helps pancreatic patients better access matched care for their tumor types? Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. And thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be part of PanCan and the long tradition of supporting families and patients and making progress in pancreatic cancer. So I'm so happy to be here. So Know Your Tumor is actually our precision medicine service. And we are basically offering um, and covering the cost of biomarker testing for patients with pancreatic cancer. We've been doing it for almost 10 years. We're celebrating 10 years next year, actually, of offering the program. And when we started, you know, we definitely um, started at a time when this wasn't something that was regularly done. And we wanted to really be able to offer it to patients with pancreatic cancer who weren't having access to it at the time. Um, and so we partner with a company called Tempest who performs the actual testing, the biomarker testing on the tissue. And once the testing is completed, then um, there's a report that's delivered to the healthcare team with information on both somatic and germline mutations, um, also things like tumor uh, mutational burden, microsatellite instability, um, and also provides information on possible treatment options for that patient. And can, I think, you know, as some of my panelists have already shared, provide valuable insight into treatment decisions for that patient. Um, and so it's our way of really providing 
testing to patients who may not have access to it. Because uh, testing is now part of guidelines and it's something that more patients are getting, we're definitely seeing less patients utilizing Know Your Tumor, but are still continuing to offer the service for patients who might not otherwise have access to it. So in particular, our focus is on patients who maybe are not at higher volume institutions, who may not be getting um, this testing as part of you know, the standard of care that other patients may get. So that's just a little bit about the program. Oh, that's fantastic. So does your team at all um, use synoptic data from the pathology reports? You right now, but we don't. So we're not currently accessing or collecting the data from a primary source. Um, but it's just overall the data that it comes out of Know Your Tumor is, is available for researchers to be able to access and analyze. And right now we have about 15 ongoing projects with different institutions um, on the utilization of the KYT data. But uh, for, for right now, we're not uh, using that as a primary source. Well, stay tuned because uh, the CAP is working on synoptic reporting for molecular reports. And the hope is that the pathologist, the poor pathologist won't have to type it in and copy it from some PDF that was faxed to them with all those numbers that are hard to read, but it'll actually be uh, sent electronically. And then you can just say, yeah, add that to the report. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to call on each one of you. And I'd just like you to quickly say, what do you think is going to change in the short term, say three to five years? And what do you think this disease will be like in 10 to 15 years um, from now? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go backwards. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Dr. Zalada Arinas. I, I think just as all of my fellow panelists have already shared, this is a really exciting time. When I started at PanCan, it was uh, almost 14 years ago, and there were very few treatment options um, that we would talk about with patients. And to see all of the progress that's been made, especially in the last few years, has been so wonderful for all of us that, that have been working in the pancreas space for a long time. So I'm really excited about where we're going. Um, our goal as an organization is to continue to improve outcomes and improve survival. So, you know, we've seen that survival number go up every year um, since for, for many years. And so we're hoping to continue to see that progress. We want patients to have access to better treatments, live longer, um, and to be able to manage the disease. So that's what I'm hopeful for. And I think this is a really exciting time. I'm really um, looking forward to seeing all the progress that's going to continue to be made in the disease um, by wonderful researchers and scientists that are working so hard on it every day. And then as an organization, we're going to continue to support patients you know, in the very best way that we can uh, provide resources to them and, and help guide their conversations with the healthcare team and really support them in whatever they need throughout their journey. So I'm really excited um, about what's coming. Dr. Ruben, what do you think? I, I, I share excitement. Um, these are extraordinary times, as everyone's mentioned. I think, you know, for me, early detection, uh, identifying who's at risk and detecting the lesions early is going to be critical. But as a pathologist, one thing we haven't talked about is artificial intelligence and the impact it's going to have. You know, when I started in pancreatic cancer, I remember my colleague, Stan Hamilton, saying, if you've seen one pancreatic cancer, you've seen them all, implying <laughs> that, you know, they're all deadly and they all look the same. Uh, but I think that 
that um, you know I'm excited by uh, the opportunity to really start to uh, subclassify tumors, perhaps in ways that the human eye can't uh, appreciate. And whether it's the tumor itself, or as Anurban mentioned, the stroma or the interaction between the two, integrating in other clinical data. Um, and Mary, you mentioned you know integrating the molecular into the path report and all that to come up with a a, a report that helps guide the clinicians to the best treatment for our patients. It is a very exciting time. And since the genotype controls the phenotype, I like to think that from imaging, we're going to be able to discern some likely molecular uh, findings behind that and be able to streamline that testing and, and point to it. And Dr. Azad, I mean, you really, uh, Azad, Dr. Azad, you're really there at the forefront of the changes as they're happening uh, while running the clinical trials. Yeah, I mean, I, I think broadly that in the next three to five years, we're going to start seeing KRAS-derived therapies to being a part of the treatment paradigm for every pancreatic cancer patient. Um, I think 10 to 15 years from now, I have real hope that we're going to see meaningful drops in the incidence of this cancer as we start being able to pick it up early and work more in that prevention screening space. Um, and I think that that's what we really need in order to, to change the amount of suffering that we see from this cancer. Yes, I am excited about the circulating uh, tumor DNA as a, as a screening tool. I guess right now it's mainly used for people who have higher stage tumors because it, that puts it out in higher concentration. Dr. Maitra, how about you? Well, I think everyone's kind of focused on the on the high points already. So I echo those thoughts. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, one is I, I'm really hopeful that there will be greater awareness uh, amongst the primary care physician communities in terms of these early risk signs for pancreas cancer. Many times, unfortunately, patients sort of bounce between physicians and that the signs of early pancreatic cancer are not recognized uh, so that uh, when they eventually present with manifest disease, the disease is often spread um, and is not resectable. Uh, and so things like new onset diabetes, especially when it's combined with features of weight loss, for example, or the diabetes not responding to medications, uh, it, those are all warning signs that, you know, primary care physicians are often the first gatekeepers. Somebody with new onset diabetes will not come to Johns Hopkins or MD Anderson. And so um, organizations like PanCan are, are really doing an amazing job at disseminating this knowledge in the lay community amongst primary care physicians. And so we're very hopeful that that will have an impact in terms of earlier detection of the disease. Um, and, and then secondly, uh, you know, just coming back to what Ralph said from a pathology perspective, you know, I, I did my fellowship uh, in 2001, so a long time ago with Ralph, and I think what a pathologist can do for this disease has really changed from just being surgical pathology now to molecular diagnostics, um, you know, CT DNA, uh, AI, uh, and subtyping the disease. And I think pathologists are going to play a huge role. I think the, the, the generation of trainees that are coming through, they are going to look at pancreatic cancer very differently from the way I looked at this 22 years ago or whatever, when I was a fellow. And so, and so I think there is just a lot of excitement for them as well to play a part in terms of, of the management of the disease, not just in the surgical pathology realm, but also in all of these other, you know, um, molecular diagnostic and clinical pathology areas. So I just want to emphasize that. Oh, that is exciting. And then that brings us to 
Paula, and Paula, you must have seen a lot of changes since you started this and the funding, and it's just so exciting to hear. How do you feel about this? Well, if you're as good as you say you are, you can make tremendous progress in this disease. And quite frankly, there's less competition in a sense, right? Um, but it's what I, I think I'm excited about is all the wonderful pathology and clinical advancements that we have heard here today. One of the very first grants that we funded at PANCAN was an AACR Career Development Award to Dr. Tuveson and Dr. Hingarani. And out of that grant, it allowed them to finish the, um, the, the really seminal uh, genetically engineered animal model that has still to this day, uh, I believe one of the most highly cited uh, animal models, I, I believe. Fantastic. Well, thank you all. This has really been a great podcast. It's been fun to be with you. And, and like I say, it's been very uplifting to hear this news. Thank you, Dr. Ederton. And thank you to our guests for sharing your experiences and expertise, especially as this month is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month and November 16th is World Pancreatic Cancer Day. And I want to thank you all for listening to this CAPCast. You can find links to the CAP's cancer protocols in the episode description. And for more information about the CAP, visit CAP.org.